When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I mean, I can chalk it up to my own neuroses, you know, too, because it's like I definitely wake up in the middle of the night thinking like, oh, God, is that idea going to hold any ground? You know, is that idea strong enough, basically? Or am I doing it because it is topical? And what if it reads as like just following a trend or like jumping on the bandwagon? Hi, everyone. I'm Amy. I'm Jamie. And this is Clever. Today, we're talking to fashion designer Mary Ping. Mary Ping's a native New Yorker and graduate of Vassar College's studio art program. She spent some formative time in London studying at London College of Fashion and working with avant-garde British fashion designer Robert Carey Williams. After returning to New York, she launched her namesake fashion label in 2001, and then in 2002, she launched Slow and Steady Wins the Race. Slow and Steady Wins the Race is a conceptual line, a living archive of wardrobe classics that is known for sartorial wit and social commentary and rooted in modern cultural anthropology. Her work is a part of the permanent collections at the V&A Museum, the Museum at FIT, and the RISD Museum, among others. And Mary Ping is a 2017 Cooper Hewitt National Design Award winner. And that's a pretty big deal. So let's talk to Mary. My name is Mary Ping. I'm based in New York City, in Manhattan. Our studio is on 25th Street in Chelsea. And my time is completely occupied by designing under Slow and Steady Wins the Race, which is a studio that is primarily clothing-based, but I like to think of it as a living archive of wardrobe classics. So let's start at the very beginning. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? What was your like family dynamic like? And what kind of a kid was little Mary Ping? <laughs> Not that different than now. My mom likes to say she gave birth to a 30-year-old. <laughs> I was born in New York on Queens Boulevard at St. John's Hospital. I have a lot of fond memories of 66th Street in particular, because that's where the opening sequence of Annie Hall mm. takes place. And a lot of that is how I associate New York. But then we moved to Westchester for total suburban life and summer times and all that. How old were you when you moved to Westchester? 10. Okay. So city life to suburban life. Now, as an adult looking back, was actually... A pretty good thing in terms of a balance. My grandmother spent a lot of time with us, my sister and I, when we were young, just kind of helping to take care of us. And so she was a huge influence. Aesthetically, she taught me how to sew. I learned starting at the age of four, and I asked for my first sewing machine, like my first real adult kind of sewing machine when I was nine. All the sort of like techniques that I know about, I have kind of a tribute to her. She really taught me how to look at things and also just how to kind of differentiate like things in terms of quality. And she had a great style too. Was your grandmother also a New York native? She's not, but she moved here from Hong Kong, I want to say in the early 70s. She was living in Tribeca. All my, you know, old photos of her really stick in my memory because she just had, like, really great understated style, but also in her later years, just 
the easiest way to describe it is very like Catherine Hepburn because it's a uniform always. It's a button-down, men's pants, New Balance sneakers, but then like, you know, some crazy heirloom piece of jewelry from like the 1920s in Shanghai that you know she had. Yeah. It's a good mix. It has to be like really, really important or like interesting for me to actually want to buy something because I know how to make stuff. Mm-hmm. It was similar with her. She would always be able to figure out how to make something and then decide like, well, if I know how to make it, then I don't really need to buy it. It's funny. Rarely do you ever get like a little kid actually interested in like how a seam is put together or like the inside of a garment, you know. What did you enjoy about the construction of garments? Did you like the physical process of making things and patterning things? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And were your parents supportive of this fashion hobby, I guess? Yeah, I mean, they still think of it as kind of a hobby. Oh. <laughs> um, I'm I'm only half joking, but okay. they were always supportive in the sense that, like, if she wants a sewing machine, we'll get her a sewing machine. But there was definitely just like along the way peppered with, oh, are you going to maybe think about medical school or are you, my mom is a little bit more old fashioned in the sense that she really takes pride in like academia and, you know, corporation or institutional work. For her, it was fine to be artistic and I have to credit her for really taking us to museums growing up and to listen to music and just getting like very culturally aware when we were young. She didn't know that exposing you to all that culture was going to lead you away from a safe and secure profession in the sciences. She wasn't so concerned if we didn't become, you know, doctors or whatnot. But definitely with my dad, it was more, you know, a practical concern. Mm -hmm. You studied studio art at Vassar, correct? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So did you have to convince your parents that you wanted to go to art school and... No, because they actually think of Vassar as a very prestigious girls' school. Like, oh, well, Jacqueline Kennedy went there, so that's <laughs> fine. You know, like... Okay. Well, what were the college years like for you? I mean, did you feel like you had found your thing? Yeah, it was great. No, it really was. I think it was crucial to do four years of something that wasn't fashion-related because I think when I attack something that is, like quote-unquote fashion-related now, it has a different point of view. I do see design as having to have a language that encompasses a lot of different fields. I think at that age, from like 18 to 22, now I know why it was so important for my teachers to kind of drill into me that like you can't be so narrow so early on. Mm. It's like good to open up your point of view then do the analysis and draw the conclusions and Mm -hmm. then, you know, dig deep and then come out of it. Did you know when you were studying art that you were somehow going to, you know, graduate and then start a fashion line right away and you knew that that was the path you were going to take? Or did you end up taking more fashion classes and then kind of decide like, okay, I definitely know that I want to do this? No, I knew since I was four. So okay. Many, yeah, I, I don't know why. Like, I never strayed from that path. That's interesting. So you took the studio art classes at Vassar as a way of opening up your field of study, your field of investigation, knowing that you were going to apply it to fashion in the end. Yeah. So when you graduated, did you just start your line like right there? Or did you do any kind of internship or get any industry experience and then take the leap? Oh, well, throughout the four years at Vassar, I I did do internships. And then graduating, I enrolled in London College of Fashion because that was also around the time that the focus was really on London, like Alexander McQueen and John Galliano and like this whole like... What year was this? This was 2001. Okay. Yeah. So I think the few years leading up to 2001 were huge, you know, because that was the early establishment of like McQueen, Galliano, Stella McCartney. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Royal College was also putting out designers too. So it was like London around that time was really exciting for that. I wound up just, you know, I've always learned the most on work experiences. So I did a studio 
apprenticeship with Robert Carey Williams while I was in London. And that was great because it was a small-scale operation. At the time, he was sort of like the next wave of the Galliano and the McQueen and whatnot. So it was still that same energy, putting a collection together. You know, some of it was like built by hand and some of it was really like couture techniques and like everyone coming together put out this very very labor-intensive collection, actually. And then, but it still had, like, the trappings of London circa 2001 because, like, you know, Anita Pallenberg was one of his models. And mm-hmm. East London was really rough around the edges still. It was still, like, that grit. But then he had so much attention on him and his work, and every show was a big spectacle, like, production. You know, there was always something crazy going on with the shoes or something crazy going on with like the hair and makeup one day in the studio he like pulled me and like one other student aside and he's like oh you know actually I think I need just you guys to work on it and you need to work on it on the you know the mannequin and I was like okay and he would just direct us like you have to get it crazier looking and do this to it and do this to it and we're like okay what is this and then comes by and Everyone else had left the studio and we're still kind of working on it. He's like, oh, I just want to let you guys know this is a special piece for Kate Moss. And I just wanted you guys to work on it. Oh, that's exciting. Then it was a little bit like, okay, now we can't mess up. You know, (laughs) (laughs) pressure's on. Shortly after London, you came back to New York and started the Mary Pink collection. And then after that, your conceptual line, which is slow and steady, wins the race. And the conceptual line, you're challenging a lot of fashion world assumptions. Mm-hmm. You're re-examining classics, yes, and mm-hmm. and you've directed your energy towards reformatting the existing fashion space. What was that time for you like when you launched both collections or when you started to to really put a conceptual line out there? It's a gutsy thing to do. What was that like? You know, honestly, it was very organic, just kind of fell into place. There were ideas that were already kind of percolating in my head. Sure. Can you tell our listeners in a nutshell what Slow and Steady Wins the Race is? Okay, so Slow and Steady Wins the Race is a, I would say it's a collection of conceptual classics. Okay. It is also a living archive that deals with the idea of the everyday wardrobe. A lot of it is focused on reinterpreting the current system from an anthropological Place. And so there's always a defining message and then a small number of pieces that describe that message. So as an example, the collection that talks about luxury, was that the bag collection? It's not. The bag collection just starts out as bag. And then the luxury collection is a tiered collection. So it is a set number of objects and they're priced at $1,000. And that was sort of like a different addition to what we were normally doing. Because when I started out, I wanted more of like a symbolic amount. So I was really strict on having everything be $100. So we started out as like a a tier of $1,000. And then, you know, at some point I'll I'll add to that layer and do like, you know, a $10,000 series. But it's all written in the description of the collection itself. Another example is white t-shirt, where it's such a familiar, modern, contemporary staple. You know, I always think of James Dean or Marlon Brando in a white t-shirt. And so for that collection, I thought there's something interesting that happens the minute you change the fabrication. Like it's still white, Mm -hmm. but it's proposed in white leather, white lace, you know, white silk, white sheer mesh, you know, just the opacity and the weight and Mm -hmm. the textures really changes the materiality. What's so nice is that main idea of that collection is not physically altering the form, Mm -hmm. keeping the form intact and just changing one thing about it really kind of transforms and still speaks to the central notion of what, you know, what the white t-shirt is. You have a piece that's included in the upcoming MoMA item show. Is that correct? Which piece is included? So the piece is called Metamorphosis, and it's an installation that we did originally commissioned by Fundacion Galerie Lafayette, which is the art foundation branch of Galerie Lafayette, the department store Mm -hmm. family in 
grants. And so this piece was shown in October of last year. And descriptively, it's 10 bags. And they are leather bags. And they start from 1 to 10. And they kind of speak to the existing idea of luxury bags and how we recognize them. Mm -hmm. And then they kind of increasingly mutate and become these weird Frankenstein synthesis of one another. And like, they kind of transform to like a final bag. And a lot of that was also speaking to production and how objects have a language with each other, how objects have their own system, how commerce and consumption and what customers want and desire and demand, also how that changes the flow of production as well. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. That's pretty heavy. And (laughs) visually what's nice is that in order to kind of still communicate all that, it feels a little bit like coming off the assembly line, Mm -hmm. and you get to see the transition of the bags from start to finish. What's also important to note is that they're all handmade and they were made by these artisans 90 minutes outside of Rome in this medieval town called Valentano that also has in its roots specifically handbag making history and knowledge. You know, they're trying to really preserve the richness of their knowledge base and their skill set. They're called Montanari. I loved working with them. So that's included in the MoMA show. And I'm totally floored and totally honored. Let's talk about your creative process a bit. You're putting all of your energy into this conceptual line that's re-examining classics. What does your process start with? How do you conduct your investigations and your research? Like what sticks in your brain and comes out the other side as an idea? You know, the way that Sunset Wins the Race is kind of organized, it takes a lot from the idea of a dictionary or like an encyclopedia. You know, it is like a reference. In my dream world, like I would have a showroom space big enough where it looks like those giant reference libraries with the mechanical, you know, stacks that can I move back and forth. <laughs> right. And, you know, and we would just archive everything. Bags, shoes, yeah. sunglasses, white t-shirts. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah. And anyone who wants to take a look at it, come take a look at it. It's just like kind of how my brain works. And a lot of that probably comes from my college days too. You know, like that's when I spent the most I'm thinking about fashion as a study, you know, with the why and the how. You draw from everywhere, and then you can go look at some Roman fragment of a statue and and see the same kind of, like, shoelacing Mm -hmm. that's happening now. And then you're like, oh, yeah, that doesn't really change. There's always, like, a nice story or a logic during the research phase. I always like discovering the genesis of things like that. In terms of collections, there's just so much that we could always draw from. So these days, it's just really a deciding factor of, do you want to do something that's pretty relevant or topical now? And only if it's something that can kind of stand on its own like 10, 15 years from now in terms of the concept that would fit into the longer sort of history. The other thing I'm also obsessed with is time. So when you ask about inspiration, sometimes it's a range of like philosophical ideas or just something behavioral. For instance, Standard Bag, that collection came about because, you know, I would just see people carrying the everyday shopping bags and the bodega bag. You always leave with like a plastic bag. And so I thought like, well, what if it's not disposable? You know, that's the easy thing. That's sort of like, what's the opposite of that, you know? But before I kind of arrive at the final conclusion, I definitely sit down by myself, just kind of like letting my brain consciously or subconsciously take in and notice like what people are wearing or what their habits are. And then I question myself too, like, oh, well, if it doesn't stick with me like a week later, then I know it's just kind of more of like a fleeting idea and it's not necessarily something you would find if you open the time capsule 25 years from now. Yeah, that actually brings me to a question about trends, because when we think of fashion, we think of like trends and and collections turning over rather quickly, but it sounds like you're really focused on classics and examining those. So how do you handle dealing with trends? 
The reason I like classics so much is that it's actually really hard to be able to come up with something that's going to survive past 10 years. Right. I used to think 10 years was also a really short amount of time, but that's rapidly changing. With trends, I can definitely think back to when I was a kid and really falling for what the latest jeans were or what kids were wearing in like middle school or high school. And you kind of buy into it. It's just gone. You know, I definitely had like my flannel um, (laughs) more, you know, like during, you know, like Nirvana, I like grunge mm-hmm. era. Everyone's in like a flannel and Doc Martens. Like Doc Martens, I would totally say like that's more of like something to to be fascinated by than sort of these other things that kind of, yeah. um, you know, came and went. My friends who are in the same age group as me, we get a total laugh out of this whole 90s revival too. But 90s of the things that we never really want to relive anyways, you know, like that's, (laughs) that's the time when you're like, oh gosh, I'm like a sophomore in high school. I'm disgruntled. I've got angst and like, but these same kids are wearing that outfit that you would wear to the mall, you know, like the baby doll dress, Mm -hmm. like cut off jeans or whatnot. And you're like mini backpack. And it's just funny because when we were doing it, we kind of didn't know what we were doing. It was more of this tribal kind of behavior where it's something that was born out of an activity of hanging out and going to the mall or meeting up with your friends. And back then it was literally like calling on the phone, speaking to someone, setting a time, and you knew you couldn't stray from that because there was no other way to get a hold of them. It's just like discovering things for yourself in a really underground kind of way. Now, because of the speed of the internet and the immediacy of how they can access that information, it's fascinating to see this instant replay. Their idea of what the 90s are is different. It's a facsimile, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's a facsimile of, of different layers on a Tumblr or like on a Pinterest board. It's funny because I've been looking at a lot of grunge photos lately and like googling old Delia's catalogs and like just trying to find all the old stuff that I used to wear because you know there is that element of nostalgia and there's like a connection and an emotional feeling that you get when you see those kinds of things but like when they do come back it's bizarre and it does feel like you're disconnected from it even though it's something that you feel like you're supposed to be nostalgic about. You know, one of my favorite fashion history 101 comparison lessons is where various decades throughout time have been drawn from elements of previous decades. And the 60s can kind of lay claim to that they were a total reaction to the 50s. And so in a way, they weren't drawing on any previous decade. You can argue like 70s has like 30 silhouettes. But then the 60s was a total, you know, like crazy explosion. Academics like to say, like, where did it come from? You know, if anything, it's like the spirit of like the flappers. It was like, okay, adopting that same kind of rebellious retaliation of anything that was kind of constrictive and letting loose. I think, too, what you said before about a trend like grunge or whatever the trends were in the 90s were part of actions and tribes and a music culture or something like that. I think that's really interesting. And when you talk about the trends kind of coming back, that's like a facsimile of it. It's not really the same thing because it's not being manufactured from a culture or need or you know what I mean there's no rebellion (laughs) it's just like a plaid shirt well I think it's less about what's going on culturally and it's less about rebellion and more about nostalgia Mm -hmm. yeah definitely when it's being regurgitated and I'm thinking of all the times that's happened even the whole swing dancing phase was a nostalgic homage to the 50s that happened in the 90s and nostalgia is a way of rebelling or a way of being tribal, but I don't think it's inherently as rebellious as co-opting the Doc Martin, which is a industrial work boot as a way of sort of espousing your political views. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Yeah. 
you had started this whole thing talking about how one of the things you're obsessed with is time. And then Jamie mm. talked about trends. And I know the way that Slow and Steady Wins the Race operates is you put out collections, but they're not on a seasonal basis. Everything you put out is sort of available forever. Like you said, it's a living archive. And so there's a timelessness built into everything you design, which I think is fascinating because you're not trying to feed off of this cycle of appetite necessarily. No, I just like the process of working on an object and working through an idea. And so at the end of the day, it's, I have to kind of live up to my whatever standards I'm going to kind of surpass on my own. And I cite this way a lot, which is my art advisor at Vassar, Harry Roseman, during one critique, he said something where the goal is always to ask questions that are smarter than yourself. And then find the answers. And that's one way to grow. And so if you are able to pose questions that you don't necessarily know the answers to yet, and then you find the answers, then it feels like you ran a mile in like three minutes. So I do think that the danger of, you know, designing something because all of a sudden it's like, that's what you're supposed to design and follow and, and whatnot. It's, you're not distilling, you're diluting. I agree. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I can chalk it up to my own neuroses, you know, too, because it's like I definitely wake up in the middle of the night thinking like, oh, God, is that idea going to hold any ground? You know, is that idea strong enough, basically? Or am I doing it because it is topical? And what if it reads as like just following a trend or like mm. jumping on the bandwagon? I have to say it's just like like Converse sneakers, like just the idea of Converse sneakers is like completely fascinating because they've been around for 102 years at this point or something like that and it's like it transcends like all ages and something about the design you know still works mm -hmm. and Levi's you know like blue jeans like no matter what iteration at the end of the day it's still blue jeans and somehow that's not going away ever and how it came about is is also just completely fascinating the fact that it's you know, adopted worldwide and recognized as its own thing. So I just kind of stick to those principles. And then just on top of that, during my research phase, I always get, a, again, I get a kick out of like, you know, discovering something that either people have forgotten about or maybe people didn't know or just like a fun fact. You know, like I think plaid, you know, plaid was like originally Indonesian and not Scottish. And I just like, I really love, if I had, you know, more time in the day, I would definitely just spend that in the library reading about how what's the visual language of like the different Indian tribes and what they wear. I still have no idea really like, well, you know, why would they, they adopt this kind of dress to kind of identify themselves from another tribe? And like, you know, what did the different things mean in terms of like the hierarchy? You know, there's always like ranking or just like, and a lot of that really comes from using what they had you know, or reinterpreting, like, something that they, you know, gained, like, a material world, you know, mm -hmm. just like the use of the material world into their culture. So that's all very, like, I would say, like, you know, just the study of humans in general, just like total anthropology. Um, and then just basically, like, how that gets reflected yeah. in our daily habits now. It is really fascinating. I want to ask you, though, for the first couple years of Slow and Steady, you were anonymous. So was that like a planned anonymity? And then at what point were you like, oh, I'm going to come out and say, like, this is me and I'm doing all of this? Oh, it's still really not by choice. The anonymity was very important in the beginning as a rule because that was direct commentary on how we had evolved. I mean, I would say, especially in like the American fashion industry, we had evolved into this obsession with knowing who the personality or the person, and then this sort of like transformation of like designer as like celebrity even. Mm -hmm. I would say only American designers became household names worldwide, you know, rarely aside from, I don't know, like Chanel or Yves Saint Laurent, there wasn't this sort of immediate goal even for designers to be a one-name empire. I would even say that unless you followed fashion and you really liked fashion, that's 
the only one you kind of knew designers by names and, you know, maybe what they looked like. But for the longest time, I would kind of argue when people would say, how come you insist on like anonymity? You know, I would say like, well, you know, Junior Watanabe is like one of the greatest designers living and you wouldn't be able to kind of spot him down the street. Whereas like, you know, when I started, it was always like, oh, we need a portrait. Mm-hmm. You know, like any interview, you needed a portrait. So as a reaction for Sloan State Wins the Race, it was definitely like everything was signed, Sloan State Wins the Race. Like everything was very just kind of pushing the focus more towards the work, you know, and kind of remaining a little bit, not like purposely mysterious in the sense that like it overrode the conversation, but just kind of just being like, let's all talk about the work. You know, let's all refocus on the work. I think I get it. (laughs) You're wearing clothes. You're not wearing me. (laughs) You're anonymous to the point that the anonymity isn't, isn't the big deal. But you're not yeah, exactly. selling your personality as the brand. It's the work that you want the attention to be focused on. Exactly. Yeah. And then eventually, just out of practicality, I kind of let the guard down because it got a little challenging to constantly have to answer that question. Sure. And also it's sure. harder to kind That's of skirt around when more, where certain people were just more bold and were like, oh, you know, and they would immediately call it out, even without knowing the whole anonymity aspect. Oh, so you'd have to like, you'd be in the position where you'd either have to confirm or deny. Yeah, exactly. And it just didn't feel consistent anymore. Gotcha. Like it wasn't, it obviously wasn't working as much as I wanted it to. And then it just kind of starts, you know, circulating. And then it's harder to kind of retract or, you know, it was harder to damage control in a way. Yeah. Just like little things would happen here and there, you know, even during like showroom or sales appointments, I would always be in the background and someone else would be doing sales. But for like the really curious kind of diehard super fan store, it's like they walk into the room and they already knew. And after the buying appointment, they would just like come up to me and be like, can I take your picture? I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm like, I know, you know, but yeah. I like, I don't really want to go there, you know, and yeah. and there's a reason why I haven't like, you know, like said anything it's kind of weird how we've become obsessed with like who is it I want to talk to them I want to take their picture it's bizarre I don't know at what point like we started moving toward that it felt like everything was kind of generic for a while and then it was very brand focused and very logo focused and then after that we had to get a microscope into the brand and find out like who are these people behind the brand I don't really know what the timeline for that was but it feels like it also moves across industries because in the furniture industry I feel like you know it's brands for a while and then now we want to know who the designer is I mean when Ikea started putting the designers names you know next to the products they were making it was like a big deal like oh this person's getting recognition for being the designer and there was that like extra level of contact that you had or maybe it's it's like a need to feel personally connected in some way or another I always argue, you know, what what I love are like unsung heroes. How come like not everyone knows what astronauts look like or like <laughs> or like who who discovered the first, you know, potential cure for cancer? They obviously made some sort of breakthrough and they're probably in medical journals, but it's not like anyone can think of their face off the top of their head. Yeah. It's interesting. It's whether you're selling a personality or whether you're creating a human connection to the work. Right. I mean, there's value in both, right? We need personalities, but sometimes the brand can be a little bit more about personality and less about the work. And I think what you're doing, and I admire it, is you're trying to create a space where you don't also have to support the brand with this cult of personality. What if you don't want to be this public figure, but you still want to make amazing work? Can you do that in this day and age? Everyone knows the glass pyramid, you know, of the Louvre. Right. I would say maybe for my parents' generation, everyone would know I am Pei and what he looked like. It's more rare for my generation or younger, probably. You know what the glass Louvre is, and you maybe know who designed it, but you certainly probably don't know what he looks like. My parents have met him a few times, so I'm familiar. And so I think I was like in conversation with his son 
and then, you know, he was, he was walking by and I just know someone who was in the same room with me had no clue. Mm-hmm. And then they were like, oh my, they were like, oh my, oh, oh, like, so that's what he looks like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing where I'm like, yeah, duh. You know? <laughs> First of all, he's a hundred and he's like, you know, the most important living architect in the world. But again, it's like probably speaks to like a different generation. It's like low key, you know, it's, I mean, I see it in my students, you know, it's what you're interested in. Mm. They're definitely interested in different things than what my friends and I would be familiar with. I don't know. I'd like to think that like in, in terms of music or pop culture, I was probably like that their age, but also I knew about the older stuff somehow. Well, you, your mom gave birth to a 30-year-old, so... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've always been an old soul. So wait, I want to ask about you personally. You were born old, and yeah. <laughs> you talked about your own neuroses, but I wonder, what would you consider your own particular superpowers? Personally, I think it takes a lot of courage to launch your own line, and definitely a conceptual line. I think that's fascinating and courageous. So I wonder if you would count courage as one of your superpowers, or is it field of vision? Because it seems like you have a pretty long field of vision. What do you think? Oh, gosh, my superpower. I'd like to say my superpower used to be my memory. I think more and more I would be, like, proven correct that, like, somehow, like, my memory was, you know, just better than the average person. Mm-hmm. I think of my brain as a filing cabinet that I can like reach really deep into, but like lately it's maximum capacity. So I, <laughs> I think certain things are getting replaced by other things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, you know, like a drawer is being emptied out and I don't realize it. It's just being replaced by other stuff. It's jammed in too tight and you can't access things easily. <laughs> yeah, it's that too. You yeah. know, like the file is, is stuck and it's yeah. literally like, oh, I think it's, is it like F? No, it's like H, you know, like it, 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 I definitely start feeling that way. You know, if that's going to be called a superpower, I've definitely refrained in social circumstances from using it because it gets a little weird. I've noticed with certain people because my strength is obviously like visual. So I can definitely recount like photographic memory style. Like I can recount um, an encounter. What? Wow. And I'll cite that encounter versus like, you know, not necessarily remembering the person's name, but I can easily recall, oh, well, we, yeah, we met because it was at so-and-so's birthday. It was actually three years ago and you were wearing this and we had a whole conversation about, you know, um, how you just came and visited your grandmother or something. And it freaks people out, you know, and, and I stopped doing that because I've gotten too many weird looks, you know? (laughs) Well, you're picking up on the social cues, so that's good. Yeah. (laughs) But um, I don't even know if that's like a really interesting, like superpower. I think it is. I mean, even Superman has to be really careful with his superhuman strength, right? Yeah. (laughs) So I have another question now that we're finding out really interesting things uh, about you personally. Is there anything that people might be surprised to know about you? More recently, as we've kind of grown and continued with the collections, I think a lot of people are really surprised at the breadth of it because for some reason they kind of can't fathom the fact that we can also do shoes and we can also do sunglasses And I always have to say, like, but it's still just design. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can design a piece of stationery just as easily as designing a lamp. You know, maybe I have to do more research because I'm not an electrician and then maybe there's certain things I might get wrong, but, like, it's not the same process and mechanics are there. I kind of attribute that to, like, my dad having, like, an engineering background. Yeah. And also, you know, obviously that was easy with with my grandmother teaching me how to sew. So knowing how to put things together, it, it didn't have to be like, oh, well, you're only relegated to cloth, therefore you can't do anything else. It was a constant, like, figuring out how things, you know, really connected and, like, work mm-hmm. and stuff like that physics yeah <laughs> during like showroom meetings or like buying appointments you know people have been really upfront being saying like 
no, there's, there's no way that you guys designed all of this. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? It's not like <laughs> 10 people and 10 different brands in this room, you know, mm-hmm. like they obviously still look like they're under the same umbrella. You know, they have the same aesthetic. They have the same style. You know, they just happen to not all be fabric. You know, they can be other things. And also just, I think it blows their mind when we also think about everything even just the way it's set up. So during our installations for Fashion Week, it was like literally from soup to nuts. Everything had to be within the world of Sloan Steady Wins the Race. So like the structures, hangers, we do, we always do custom hangers. So you do the total environment. Total environment, like everything's rethought. Even if it is sort of an intervention of a space where we're kind of adopting certain elements of the space, but we're still using it in a way where it's flipped for our own purpose. And then there's always something that's customized or like custom built. Yeah. I love that. And every new exploration is adding to your material vocabulary and your engineering vocabulary and how things. Oh, definitely. And I think that is going back to my neuroses. It's sort of like it adds to this material world that I get really anxious about because I'm like, Oh my God, there's so much stuff, you know, (laughs) (laughs) because I know how to work with more and more stuff. Then I kind of accumulate more and more stuff. And a few years back, I was really committed to doing ceramics and the end goal is obviously to have Sloan Steady homeware. And I felt like the need to also just understand it first myself. Yeah. Again, it was like more stuff. I like my brain immediately went to like, oh God, well, I got like, how do I do a kiln? (laughs) And like, (laughs) and I was like, wait, and I got to get carving tools and like, I've got to get this and like, I need a wheel. (laughs) Yes. Well, what's the current project? What's something you want our listeners to know about? After kind of troubleshooting over the years, I figured out a good way to combine Sloan Steady Wins the Race with the original signature Mary Ping collection. Oh. Yeah. So I was kind of working through it for the last year with my friend, Catherine, who also is, she's a stylist and she works on the collections with me. So there's a lot of practical conversations, intellectual conversations, and long-term conversations like, you know, is this the right solution? Are people going to get confused? Or hopefully people won't get confused and this will offer more clarity. So that's something I really want to start tackling because this is the 15-year point. So I think a lot of people are kind of hoping for something, you know, this year. I mean, part of me doesn't like adhering to that practice of like anniversaries. So we're going to do it in a way that also comments on that as well. But what would be nice is that it actually kind of combines everything in a way that I think finally makes a lot of sense and is really clear. So that's what we're working on. Well, what's the best way for our listeners to kind of keep tabs on all of those projects? Do you have a newsletter or website, social media? Yeah, I really, I love our newsletter. Like I love like our journal. And so that's connected to our website, slowandsteadywinstherace.com. And you can click on our Instagram. You can click mailing list to sign up for the mailing list. Well, thank you so much. It has been so lovely talking to you. Yeah, Yeah. it's been great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. She is a very fascinating person. I love that she's, in her own words, reformatting the existing fashion space by not adhering to the seasonal format, by re-examining these classics, by building timelessness into each piece, but discussing the things like luxury and craftsmanship through materiality and price point. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, it's really interesting. And she kind of broke through this weird stereotype that I guess I had in my mind of what fashion designers are like and that they all think about seasons and they all think about trends and she's nothing like that at all I mean she's thinking on a a macro scale like fashion in general and how we interact with it like she said it's very sociological it's very anthropological yeah um, and it's very research-based And I find it really interesting that people watching and walking around New York is like part of her job. (laughs) Yes. And her macro view is something I really, really appreciate because 
She's seeking to have a bigger dialogue and a dialogue that can continue through different generations of people, through different eras of time. And she's also not pigeonholing herself into a certain type of garment construction. I mean, she's set up a framework for herself, but it's not a pigeonhole. And I have always really admired people who can give themselves a framework that still allows them to explore everything that they're curious about. And her curiosity is something that she described it more as neuroses, but I, I think it's really like this insatiable curiosity. And I love that. Like you can tell she could spend hours and hours just researching something. Yeah, well, I like what she said that her professor told her during a critique that you need to ask questions that you can't answer and then answer them. Mm -hmm. I kind of came away thinking about that and how I can apply that in my own work or in my own creation. Or The other thing that she said that really gave me goosebumps was talking about how conducting these investigations and really thinking about the work and really investigating to the point of putting out something that you know is a strong idea that can hold water and that can stand the test of time is about distilling things down. And if you just add to the current population of product, the influx of all this stuff that's just being manufactured then you're diluting as opposed to distilling. And that whole mm -hmm. distillation versus diluting thing, that's a really interesting concept. Super oh, powerful. Oh, yeah, and it crosses over disciplines for sure. I mean, you can apply that to any industry that makes stuff. Oh, um, anything. Or adds stuff to the world. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, I think it's a problem in media. We have so Huge. many channels, and we also have so many avenues on the internet, and people are taught now to just kind of populate the internet with stuff that will get a search ranking, and it's not necessarily quality stuff. It's just stuff to dilute mm -hmm. the existing space. Anyway, it's flotsam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and go to cleverpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes and see images of Mary's work. Connect with us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We love hearing from you. This episode of Clever was edited by Ty Navaris with music by L1011. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.